The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. A plan. And you know what that plan had in it? The mess. And so I look at my life and what Satan, sin, and society have done to me over the years, and I say, wow, there's such a mess in here. But it's not a mistake. Now, how do I know that? By faith. Not by looking at me, but by looking at my Heavenly Father. He doesn't do anything bad. He makes no mistakes. All his works are done in righteousness. It was done in perfect wisdom. And like it or not, like it or not, like it or not, the way this world is today is because Our Heavenly Father planned it. To say otherwise would make world, sin, Satan greater than God. And God is backpedaling and reinventing the wheel every step we take. Right? You weren't so so enthusiastic about saying amen to that last night. It's like, I don't know. He permitted. No, no. He permitted nothing. He planned it. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. There is no mistake about the mess the world is in. And there's no mistake about the mess it made out of me or you. It's still a mess. There's a reason for all this. One verse for you in Romans chapter 11 to get started this morning. And listen to who is the subject of this verb. Romans chapter 11, verse 32, it says, For God has consigned, who has consigned? God has consigned all to disobedience, the mess. God has consigned all to the mess so that he might have mercy on all. God has a super plan behind the plan. God has consigned all to disobedience so that they might have mercy on all. And listen to how Paul breaks out into worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. This plan was based on the knowledge of God because understanding what this mess would create and the messes it would make out of our lives, God had something bigger in mind, something greater in mind, something more glorious in mind, so that when he got through with the entire plan, it would be better than if it had never become a mess. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might have to be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. How many things? To him be the glory forever. Amen. Doesn't matter which theological party you belong to, you agree with what I just read. Remember, I'm an independent. 
That's what we talked about last night. And so for me and my spiritual life, as messy as it gets on a day-to-day basis, I can look to my Heavenly Father and say, it's not a mistake, and you're not surprised. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we got cleaned up. <laughs> it's a mess. He planned it so that he could do something far greater in our lives. And that's where we're talking about this morning, Jesus. You see, this is the perfect mess. Last, w- last night we covered the whole board, so if you can't see that little box, don't worry about it. We're not th- staying there. I just put it up in the corner so that we have a context for this morning. God planned the perfect mess so that he could clean it up. And in clean it up, he sent the perfect man. Adam was good, very good. But he had untested creaturely holiness, never been put to the test before. And as soon as he got tested, guess what happened? Didn't work out so well. Didn't work out well for him, doesn't work out well for us. All who are in Adam die, 1 Corinthians 15. God needed to hit the reset button. You know when your gadget doesn't work? My son said, don't call tech, just shut it off, count to 10, and turn it back on. Something in it will probably reset, and it'll work fine. And so far, that's always worked. God hit the reset button. Adam didn't work out, but he needed a second Adam. He decided before the foundation of the world, before first Adam ever was created and fell, God had already planned on a second Adam, a better Adam, a perfect man. And this perfect man would be a member of the Godhead, God the Son, the eternal word. God decided that all human history would unfold in such a way that this second Adam would be the focus of all providence. And that everything beforehand and everything afterward will revolve around this second Adam, this reset button, this new humanity. That's what God had in mind before he ever made the first humanity. He never intended, never intended for Adam and Eve to have a bunch of kids and stay in paradise in the garden. That wasn't good enough. By the time we get done this morning in both sessions, I hope you'll understand that what we have and what we're a part of as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is far greater than Adam and Eve would have ever experienced had the fall not taken place. You got to make a mess to build a nice building. You got to have a messy study to make a document. And God's glory, mercy, and grace could never have been known, could never have been known apart from the devastation and the deadliness and the destruction that we experience on a daily basis because of the fall. We would never know the glories of Jesus Christ apart from the devastation of sin and death. Now, God wants us to know that he planned the mess so that he could make it better than ever. And it's through the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus of Nazareth, for our, su- for our time together this morning, point number one, Jesus of Nazareth is the one who guarantees life. Let me tell you, when Adam fell, 
before chapter 3 of Genesis ever finished. Chapter 3, Genesis 3.15. Some of you know, God promises that through the seed of woman, the head of the serpent would be smashed. Now that's very symbolic. But God's already talking about what he has in mind. All the way from Genesis 3, the very moment Adam fell in the garden, God's already saying, I got a hint for you, it's going to get better. I'm fixing it. I, I, I broke it. I let it get broken so that it could be fixed. And then we move on to Genesis. This is Genesis. We move on to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, 3. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Genesis chapter 12, we got a guy named Abram, and he'll be called Abraham later. If you permit me, let me just call him Abraham. God said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor the one who curses you, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I don't get it. That doesn't sound too spectacular. Turn over to Genesis chapter 15. God expands on it. He says, Abraham, go outside. Verse 5, and he brought him outside and said, Look up to heaven and count the number of stars. That's before there was light pollution. You ever been out in a dark place? There's lots of them in Arizona. You drive a few miles out and all of a sudden, wow, who turned on those lights? Abraham, look up into the heavens and count the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. He just finished telling God, I don't even have a child, and I'm really getting old. And so is my wife. She can't have kids anymore. God says, look up, count them. You can't. So is your offspring be. And what did Abraham respond? He, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Turn over to chapter 17. This is 10 years later. From chapter 12 to chapter 17, we've gone about 26 years. No kids yet. And when Abraham, Abraham, Abram, was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. That's a good thing so far. How's it working out for you? Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face and said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. God said to him, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. And I, For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I'm sure Abraham in his mind is looking around going, really? How's that going? God, hello. But Abraham didn't do that. I would have done it. That's why he didn't pick me to do that. And he says, and I will 
give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, and you, you and your offspring throughout all your generations. God's made some promises to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17. You're going to have an heir. You're going to have offspring. And of course, eventually Isaac was born, but that wasn't who God was talking about. According to Paul in Galatians chapter 3, Galatians 3, 16, it says that the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. And it does not say seed as referring to many, but seed as referring to one, namely Jesus Christ. The son of Abraham promised to Abraham was Jesus, who God had in mind all alone, through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now skip over, if you would, 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's another character. You might know him. Some of you might even have his name. David. How many Davids in here? Oh, there you go. See? You ain't him. How do I know that? Ah, that's a good question. Second Samuel chapter 7. David has a passion for God. That passion for God was shown that the moment he became king over all Israel, what did he do? You remember what he did? It's something Saul never did in 40 years of being king. The first thing David is recorded of David doing as a king. You know what it was? Pastor Craig? Bible quiz time. Sorry, I won't put you on the spot. Joe, what did David do the first thing as a king? I knew I could pick on Joe. He found the Ark of the Covenant and had a big parade and brought it back to the city. It had been out in exile in some little town. Saul never cared about it. You know why? Saul didn't think about God very much. But David was a man after God's own heart, and he couldn't wait to get God back where he belonged in the central capital of the nation. And he had a parade, and he danced, and some people got offended. And then the next thing David said is, I want to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant because I love God. He's my God. He's the almighty God. He's the true and living God. And, and God said, so, whoa, 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 stop. You're not building me a house. I don't need this. But David, I love you. I'm going to build you a house. And he didn't mean a palace. He meant an offspring. Verse 8. Now, therefore, you shall say to David, my servant, verse, chapter 7, verse 8, 2 Samuel, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. That's exactly what he said to Abraham. Your name will be great. I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will point a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declared to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall be, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And you might think that's Solomon. No. You might think that was Jehoiada. No. You know who it is. Same guy. Same guy. Second Samuel seven. It's Jesus. Somebody look up the first verse of the New Testament. The first verse of the New Testament. Matthew one one, in case you're wondering what it was. Because some of you would sit there, well, it's not chronologically the first verse. Because Mark was written first. Now the first verse of the New Testament. The record of genealogy of who? Of Jesus, the son of David. Son of David, the son of Abraham. You see? That's what God had in mind all the time. I've got a son. He's the son of Abraham, just like I said. Because that's what I've had in mind the whole time. And he's the son of David, just like I said. And he's the heir. Isaac's not the heir. Abraham's not the heir. Oh, they participate. The son is the heir. And you know, David, he's cool. But the one who sits on the throne of David forever and ever, his name is Jesus. Now you understand. God's doing something bigger than the mess. He's not only the son of Abraham and the son of David, but turn if you would. And there's so many passages I'm skipping. But turn if you would to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John chapter 5, somewhere around verse 17. Actually, 17, verse 17. Somewhere around it, right on it. I don't try to memorize verses and stuff. I sort of know where they are. It's kind of vicinity checking. But somewhere in there. John five seventeen. Jesus was being accused of doing something good on the Sabbath day, and here's his excuse. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. 
So if God the Father wants to do something on the Sabbath day, I can't help it. Take it up with him. But if he does something, I'm doing it. And this is why, verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not because he was only break, because he was breaking the Sabbath, because he was even calling God his very own father, making himself equal with God. We've got the son of Abraham, we've got the son of David, and we've got the son of God. That's hot stuff. Son of Abraham, son of David, son of God, rolled up into one person. His name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, in case you were wondering if it was uh, someone else named Jesus, like a baseball player. I knew a church planter named Jesus, and I used to joke with him and say, Jesus, I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus. And he goes, yeah. This is a different Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's the Jesus of Nazareth promised in Isaiah chapter 7 that there will be a son born of a virgin. It's the Jesus of Nazareth promised in Isaiah chapter 11 where it says out of the root of Jesse shall come one and the spirit of God shall be upon him. It's the Jesus of Nazareth who becomes the servant of God in Isaiah 41, 48, 49, 50, 53 where the servant of the Lord lays down his life for the sheep and rises from the dead again and gives them righteousness. This is the servant of the Lord. This is the Jesus we're talking about. This is who God had in mind before the foundation of the world. Like it says in 1 Peter chapter 2 where it says, Before the foundation he was the Lamb of God slain. That's this Jesus, in case you were wondering. Before the mess ever came about, God already had Jesus in mind. To clean it up. It's not a mistake that the world is in the shape it's in. And it's not a mistake that my spiritual life sometimes is in the shambles that it seems to be. No surprise. We've got the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. He's the one who God guaranteed. He's the one that he set all compasses and all roadmaps and all of human history, directing every choice that every human being ever made so that everything that would come about would come about to the fullness of time. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, so that he might lay down his life and redeem those and give us the spirit of adoption. That's what God had in mind the entire time. And every factor of every aspect of humanity has been working and weaving its way to the moment so that Jesus could step in, come unto his own, have his own reject him, so that he could lay down his life as a ransom for the many. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So when Jesus comes on the scene, we discover that God hits the reset button. The word, the eternal word, this part of the triangle, the son, becomes flesh jumps into the mess he jumps square into the mess it says in ephesians chapter 4 that he descended to the lower parts of the earth that's biblical now biblical terminology for the incarnation that same phrase is used in psalm 139 the lower parts of the earth is being inside your mother forming to become a 
fully formed human being. Jesus descended to the lower parts of the earth. He became a man, like it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, who being in the form of God, did not think being equal with God was something to be held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in the fashion of a man. He became obedient even to the point of death, the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. That's what God had in mind all along. All along. Jesus is the promised one, the guarantee of life. And then Jesus comes and he defines the model for life. You're still in John chapter 5? Listen to this. Just a couple verses down. Verse 19. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, can do nothing of himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus says a mouthful there. You see, as a human being, the first Adam, first Adam did everything of his own accord. He got an opportunity to say yes to God or no to God. Guess what he said? No. He ate the fruit. Self-determination. Jesus said, I don't determine anything for myself. I don't do anything on my own initiative. I only do what the Father is doing. What I see him do, that's what I do. Turn over to John chapter 8, verse 28. 828. Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I can do nothing on my own authority. How much can he do on his own? Nothing. But speak just as the Father taught me. I don't even speak what I want to speak. I don't do what I want to do. I'm not self-willed. I'm, I'm completely submitted to the will of my Father. In John chapter 6, he says, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in John 8, he says, verse 29, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do the things that are pleasing to him. How much does he do that's pleasing to God? Always do. This man, Jesus, who laid aside deity for the form of a servant, this man, Jesus, as a servant, as the second Adam, always does what the Father wants him to do. Only says what the Father wants him to say. He's how obedient? He's perfectly obedient. He's the perfect man. Adam was okay. He started out very good. Eh. He hit a bump in the road. He has more than a bump. <laughs> Jesus, the second Adam, the last Adam, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam never, never did anything of his own will. He always checked with God. Turn over to chapter 12 of John. I mean, he says this over and over again. As a man, Jesus defines the model for life. The model for life isn't walking on water and raising the dead. The model for life is complete surrender and 
submission to the will of God the Father. That's the model for life. Jesus modeled it. He lived it perfectly, without exception. Look at chapter 12, the last couple of verses. All the way there, verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, my own initiative. But the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. You mean everything he said he was doing under direction? Everything he said was under direction? He never said, hey, by the way, how are the, how are the Buckeyes doing? He would have if the father said, ask him how the Buckeyes are doing. Otherwise, he'd have kept his mouth shut. The things he taught, the things he thought, the things he did. Sometimes the father did things he didn't even know he was doing. He said, I felt power go out of me. Somebody touched me. Disciples, who touched me? Jesus, are you kidding? Oh, I felt power go out of me. Power? You mean he wasn't in charge of the power that went out of him? Well, let me give you a quiz. What happened when he went into the Jordan River and was baptized by John? What happened to Jesus? He received the Holy Spirit. What Holy Spirit? Same one you've got if you're a believer. He received the Holy Spirit. And then in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness. And then in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, it says, And when Jesus was done being tested, he went back into the synagogues in the power of the Spirit. And he picked up the Isaiah scroll and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You know what we have in this person, Jesus, the heir of Abraham and the heir of David? You know what we have in this person, Jesus? A servant of God who is filled with the Holy Spirit and obedient to the Spirit's leading in his life. That's how he did what he did. In fact, he told the Pharisees as much. In Matthew chapter 12, when they were accusing him of casting demons out by Beelzebub, Jesus turned to him and he says, if I cast out Demons by the Spirit of God. You see, Jesus even cast out demons by the Holy Spirit. He says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus understood where his power came from. He understood where his authority came from. And he understood where his obedience lies. It was with the Father. He didn't even speak on his own initiative. He didn't perform miracles on his own initiative. He did it in the power of the Holy Spirit as a submitted human being, as the perfect man should have done in the garden the first time this opportunity came about. Jesus came, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, filled with the Holy Spirit, obedience to the Father's will, even to death on the cross. Wow, he is defining the model for life. It isn't that I'm supposed to walk on water, although I can do that when the lake freezes. That isn't God's will for my life to walk on water, but God's will for my life is to submit entirely to God's will for my life and to live it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus has ever lived the Christian life. Only Jesus has ever fully obeyed the Father's will. And he did it without sin. Tested to the max. Jesus defied all visible odds. 
When offered all the kingdoms of the world, he said, now I'm going to worship God in heaven. When offered to make bread out of stones, he says, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that comes out of God. You Israelites should have learned that. That's why you wandered in the wilderness. Jesus did it. The perfect man defining the model for life. Jesus is the spirit-filled son. Jesus is the surrendered son. Turn over to John 14. Another hint. Jesus lived the exchanged life. Really? I got a couple of verses, but this one's a big one. John 14, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That's, that's tough. We won't unpack that right now. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who, what? Who dwells in me, abides in me. The Father who dwells in me does his work. Jesus did his work by the indwelling presence of God in his life. Jesus, the servant, the man, in the likeness of sinful flesh, weak, sinful flesh, relied upon the indwelling presence of the power and life of God in order to live the life he needed to live. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, oh, around verse 22. Even Peter understood this after Pentecost. He says, men of Israel, verse 22, chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. You see the difference? There's God in Christ doing the works through Christ. God in him, through him, but as Jesus. That was the exchange life. Jesus lived it perfectly. Never submitted to his own will. Never said, you know, I know God the Father wants me to pray, but I need to watch a couple of people just to chill out. I'm tired. I do that, by the way. Not, not the pray part, but the watching part. Long day. I think I'll watch a couple of 15-year-old reruns of The X-Files. I know, I'm watching The X-Files. Yeah, the truth is out there. <laughs> you got to believe. <laughs> oh, mercy. Let's go through the Stargate. Okay. Anyway, Jesus never set aside the Father's will. Never set aside. He defined the models of life. But you know what? Jesus also provides the means for life. In his servanthood, and we've already cited Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, in his servanthood, he laid aside the glory of deity, took upon the humility of a servant, and in that servanthood obeyed the Father's will even to the point of death. In his righteous life, we've already seen he never deviated from the Father's will, right? He was a righteous man. He was born without sin, and then he lived without sin, right? Always pleasing the Father. In his righteous life, 
God decided that this Jesus and his righteousness, how do you spell that? Let's see, righteousness. Can't walk and chew gum sometimes. Jesus' righteousness would be God the Father's gift to anyone who would believe him. See, my acceptance with God is performance-based. It's just not my performance that it's based on. There's somebody else who performed God's will for me. Is this taking you by surprise? If you're a believer this morning, you know whose righteousness you're clothed in? Christ's righteousness. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 3, real quickly. We've got a lot of passages to go. We might go a long time. I was short last night. We'll make up for it tonight. Romans chapter 3, beginning around verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the mess, right? Look at the next verse. And are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins and to show his righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier who have faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith and God's gift to us when we trust what God has said about his son Jesus is that he gives us his son's righteousness. I stand before my heavenly father free from my guilt and shame and the mess that sin and death and Satan and I have created together. I stand free from that in the presence of God and I stand in front of my heavenly father with his son Jesus' righteousness. And he says, hi son. This is what I had in mind all along. Righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. But in his sacrifice on the cross, he did something even just as wonderful. I was going to say more wonderful. I don't know. I can't degree. I can't grade these things. I love having Christ's righteousness. It's my freedom. But when Jesus died on the cross, he died the just for the unjust. First Peter chapter three, verse eighteen. The just for the unjust, the right, the the righteous for the unrighteous. He was my substitute. Did I spell that right? Or did I don't care. Substitute. If I didn't spell it right, that's what I meant to write. He was my substitute. I deserve to die. Jesus died instead. Why? Well, I'm worth it. No! God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's God's love that sent him to the cross 
to die as my substitute. But when he died as my substitute, something else happened. God made peace. That's called reconciliation. God reconciled himself to me. I became his friend. He became my friend. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, I think 19 might be 18, no. Vicinity, vicinity verse. That God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. The word reconciliation means a change of relationship. God who in his wrath had to be at enmity with us on the cross took out that enmity on his son so that he could have friendship with us. He's my friend. He's not my judge. He's not looking to find fault with me so that he can stomp me into the ground and say, I told you you weren't worth it. He already knew I wasn't worth anything but his own love. He knew what he got when he bought me. A mess. No surprise. Remember? You can't go, surprise. He can't look at me and go, I didn't think you would do that. After all I did for you, you did that. Oh, that sounds like how I grew up. I took you to the ball game and you won't cut the hedge. No more ball games for you. My heavenly father never taught that. He took my place. He made peace. He satisfied God's justice. I write these things to you, beloved brethren, that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a satisfaction for our sins, and not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. That's the word propitiation. When Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of the Father, the justice demanded by the Father's righteousness, was satisfied with Jesus. So then when he looked at, looked at us, he said, I'm satisfied. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? No condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Can I abuse that with presumptuous sin? Yes, I can, but it doesn't change the fact. The fact is, when I get up in the morning, whether I've had a good day or a bad day following God, I'm still in his sight with Christ's righteousness his friend, and God satisfied with the justice. Nothing can change that. It's a non-behavior performance-based relationship. It's called unconditional love. All the conditions were met by Jesus. And the Father's satisfied. Whew. You with me so far? pretty good, huh? Not the preaching, the Jesus. Wasn't looking for approval. That's our Savior. That's what God had in mind. That's better than the Garden of Eden. Better than the Garden of Eden. But wait, infomercial. There's more. There is. When he rose from the dead, At 
resurrection. I don't know how he said that. But he rose from the dead. He was raised with an indestructible, this is really testing my faith, indestructible life. Hebrews chapter 7, an indestructible life. And that life, the resurrection of life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that life has become what the Father has given me. He's not only given me his righteousness, he's not only satisfied the mess and the judgment required by the mess, but when Jesus rose from the dead, he gave me Jesus' indestructible life that I could know him in the power of the resurrection. That's greater than living in the power of the flesh. There's something inside of me that wasn't there before. The same spirit that animated Jesus, the life from the Father that was given to Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, that same spirit was given to every believer since the day of Pentecost, and that's the power of the living Christ. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, if you would. Romans chapter 8. Verse 9, and we'll read a couple verses. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. But if Christ, who is in you, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. When Jesus rose from the dead, God created the system that would give me spiritual life. Woo! I'm not on my own anymore. The Father that worked in Jesus is now living in me by the person of the Holy Spirit. And if I want to tap into that, I can have the same power of the resurrection. No wonder why Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I count everything a loss for the excellency of the knowledge of him that I might know him and the power of the resurrection. I want to know the living Christ in me. I want to sense that it's an exchanged life, Jesus' life in me, living through me, living as me. Because I don't want to live this Christian life as some religious martyr. I want to live it in the power of Jesus' resurrected life. We got his righteousness. We have God's satisfaction guaranteed, and we have an indestructible life living in us, and his name is Jesus, and it's in the person of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that better than living in a garden? (laughs) It is. Not knowing God like this. He's our life, and then he's our help. We'll talk more about that in the second half. Final point. He's all of this. He's our model for life. He's our means to life. But God set it up that Jesus is the mission in life. What do I mean by that? Well, it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, that we will all be conformed to the image of Christ. Right? What does that mean, to be conformed to the image of Christ? Am I going to be like little Jesuses running around? No. You know why? Because... The perfect mess made you a very unique person, unlike anybody else in this room, unlike anybody else on the face of the earth. 
Even identical twins aren't the same. Isn't that right? Any identical twins here? Don't raise your hand, but you would agree. You're not like your brother or sister, right? Right. Brothers and sisters in the same home, you're not the same. Right? Right. We're all different. The mess made a mess, a unique mess. God planned on that mess because when he reclaims that mess and straightens up the mess, you don't lose your identity and who you are. You become the best version of yourself. Some of you love like nobody else can love in this room. Some of you are sensitive like nobody is sensitive in this room. Some of you can arrange and organize and discern things better than anybody else in this room. Some of you can teach and think clearly like nobody else in this room. So, so we're all different. We all have aspects of our personality that were stamped into us, yes, by a mess, but with God's mind designing it. So that when Jesus would reclaim you, rather than become little Jesuses and a clone army of cult people, some think spirituality is like that. We would become individual expressions of the grace of God and the manifold mercy and love of God, unlike any other expression walking the planet. I believe that with all my heart. You know why? Because we're not mistakes. You know why I believe that? Because I trust my Heavenly Father that He does everything well and in righteousness. So I'm not a mistake. Even though I'm a mess, he's cleaning up the mess. I'm still not a mistake. He had a, <laughs> God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. <laughs> right? He really does. And so Jesus being the mission of my life means that when God sent this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he sent the first, the prototype. He sent the first of a brand new race of humanity. He's the first fruits of a new humanity. He's the first from the dead. He's the sample. He's the head of a whole new race. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the first Adam was a man of the earth. The second Adam is a life-giving spirit. He's the one who gives life. He is the life. And so we discover that Jesus determines the mission of life. He's the Lord over all of God's institutions and laws. He's the Lord over all of God's institutions and laws. When he looked at the Pharisees, he says, if you knew who was speaking here, someone greater than the temple. When they chided him about breaking the Sabbath, he says, don't you understand? The Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. And when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you understand, Moses wrote, you shall not. But I say to you, he replaced Moses, he replaced the temple, he replaced the Sabbath, he replaced God's known Mosaic institutions with himself. He is the word of God. Oh, wait. He is the Word of God. Jesus is the Lord over all God's in laws and institutions. Why? He's the Word of God. 
Jesus requires an entirely new standard for life. He doesn't want us to fulfill Moses' law. That was for the nation of Israel. It was their government system. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. And this commandment encompasses everything God has ever commanded. Just read Paul, chapter 13, Romans. He says, I give you a new commandment. That with the same love that I came here and loved you, I want you to love one another. If you do that, all men will know you're my disciples. Everybody on the face of the earth will know you're my disciples if you love one another with the redemptive love that I loved you. Lay down your lives for one another. Forgive. Reconcile. Be at peace. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Love doesn't seek its own good, but it seeks the good of another. Love one another the way I loved you. You got it, guys? And his disciples went, <laughs> One commandment. How, how simple can it get? One commandment. The new covenant says, I'll make with you a new covenant, and their sins I will renum remember no more, and I will write my law on their hearts. Where's that law written? Where's the law, where's the commandment of Jesus Christ written? In you. You're a living letter of the love of God. It says so, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, read it sometime. And the Spirit enlivening you has written Christ's law in your heart so that Paul could say to the Thessalonians chapter 4, you have no need that anyone teach you to love one another because you are taught by God to love one another. John said it this way, 1 John chapter 2, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you have no need that anyone teach you. He wasn't talking about doctrine, he was talking about lifestyle. You have no need that anyone teach you because the anointing teaches you all things. What? All things pertaining to the command. And if you don't understand that, later on in chapter 3 of 1 John, he says there's two commandments, believe in him and love one another. Wow, it's really that simple? Yep. To be like Christ, then, would be to live like Christ, submitted under the authority of God's will by the power of the Holy Spirit, fulfilling the one commandment. It isn't about doctrinal orthodoxy. I love doctrinal orthodoxy. I'm a teacher. But that isn't godliness. I've known orthodox people who don't love their neighbor. They don't even love their wives. They're so stuck in their orthodoxy, they don't even love themselves. It isn't about faithfulness to a church. I've known church-going people who don't know Jesus. Are you with me? The one commandment that distinguishes us from all others is that we lay down our lives for each other. So where does that put unforgiveness? Where does that put irreconcilability? Where does that put grudges? Where does that put hatred? There's no place for it. It doesn't exist in our vocabulary. Where does that put church splits? Where does that put arguing and fighting? Well, there's good fights in love. And you hug at the end, and, and you got to talk things through. But where does that put 
provision and stature and one-upmanship and kingdom building. There's no place for that. To be like Christ is to fulfill the law of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. It isn't to become a little Jesus, walk on water, raise the dead, wear long robes, let your hair grow real long and wear sandals. I mean, those are cool garbs. They're good in the desert, but it doesn't make you like Jesus. Jesus says from the heart flow the issues of life. To be like Christ is to walk in the Spirit with His righteousness. God's satisfaction. Exchange my life for his life, always doing the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that we love one another with the same redemptive love, picking up our cross, the place of execution, the place of redemption, the place of humiliation, picking up our cross so that others can find life. That's what Jesus did. That's what he wants to empower us to do. The perfect man is God's method to clean up that perfect mess. And if that mess hadn't never taken place, we would have never seen Jesus. Aren't you glad Adam blew it? Come on. (laughs) Do you want to be stuck in the garden? Not having the indwelling presence of the living God in you? I don't. I want to taste the indestructible life. I want to know him and be united with him, which we'll talk about in the next class. I want to know him who is him. I don't want to just know about him. That's religion. I want to know him. Christian spirituality isn't knowing about God. Christian spirituality isn't being a good Christian, going to church and making sure you don't get the people upset. Christian spirituality is a dynamic walk with the living God in the power of the Holy Spirit, all provided for and promised and equipped through the person, in the person of Jesus Christ. God in Christ has done everything everyone of us would ever need to live in fellowship with him. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. First, Second Peter chapter 1. And he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1. He couldn't do anything more. He's done it all. It's ours. Just accept it. Yield yourself to him. And let the life of Christ find its home in you. We'll talk about that in the second hour. Any questions about what I've said? We're always going to have a little bit of question time. I know in about a minute I'll be cutting into your break. Tell us. (laughs) It'll be your fault. Any questions? Yes, sir. Loss of salvation? The idea of it? Uh, There's some verse... The idea of the loss of salvation. There are some verses that if you read them outside of the entire meta-narrative of this plan of God uh, would say, wow, you could lose your salvation. I I don't deny that. Otherwise, nobody would believe it. But my view about loss of salvation is this. 
turn to John chapter 6. important if you're struggling with loss of salvation having preached and taught in in certain denominations this is a hot item not at my church i shoot those people no i'm in love for the rest of the church now (laughs) now could you imagine me shooting anybody I, I don't even know which end of the gun to point first. If I pull the trigger, I'd probably blow my head off. John chapter 6, verse 38. Here's what my answer to eternal security, which is what you're after, and the positive. Jesus is talking. If you have a red letter edition, you can see that. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You got that? Jesus has come to do the Father's will. Now, we've already talked about how good was Jesus at doing the Father's will. Perfect. Okay. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. You want to know what the Father's will was? Here it comes. Drum roll, please. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you belong to the Father, for you to lose what The Father gave the Son. Jesus would have to, what? Fail to do the Father's will. My security does not rest upon my behavior. My security rests on whether Jesus can accomplish the Father's will or not. I feel pretty secure. Sometimes I abuse that security. Don't we all? But I'd rather have it there than be scared that any moment I would fall into an eternal flame because I wasn't good enough. Jesus is good enough for me, and he came to do the Father's will, and the Father's will is that if I belong to Jesus from the, as given to him by the Father, and I do, that Jesus would never lose hold of me. I'm safe and secure from all along. <laughs> right? And it isn't because I'm good. It's because Jesus is perfect. He's my security. I don't look to him plus what I can add. I look to Jesus. Some days I'm ashamed to look up. Nonetheless, I can look up. The shame is my problem to deal with. Jesus is not the problem. Any other questions? Good question. Yes, sir. In the garden. Now, remember, I wasn't there. I'm older, but I'm not sure. At least one. I mean, we don't know, you know, go ahead. God walked with Adam in the garden. Let's give that, let's not unpack that let's just say yes he did that has no comparison to god living inside of me and me being inside of god no comparison jesus prayed in high priestly prayer father i pray that they be one 
as you and I are one, and that they be in us, and that we would be in them. Do you know how superior that position is than simply having somebody walking around in the garden with you? That might be cool to think about, but my brothers and sisters, you have such a higher privilege and calling. The prophets longed to see our day. A day when God would not dwell in a tent, but would dwell in his people. And that we would, we'll talk about this in the next hour, be united with him. And we would be in the Father, in the Son, in the Spirit, and the Spirit would, and the Father and the Son would be in us. I'll take that over the garden. And this is just the down payment. So if life's still messy, it's just the down payment. Wait till the whole thing unfolds. We're not even saved yet, according to Romans 8. Huh? We're not even saved yet. What did Paul mean in Romans 13 when he says, the day of our salvation is nearer than when we first believed? Brothers and sisters, don't look around and cling to this stuff. We weren't meant to stay here like this, ever. There's something far bigger to this picture. The mess is temporary. There's going to come a day when there will be a new heaven and new earth in which dwells righteousness, and the righteous will shine like the stars, and we will be the bride, and the God will be the light of heaven and earth. Brothers and sisters, this isn't anything to hang on to. And we cling to it like, ah, don't kill me. Don't let me die now. Why not? Paul said to live as Christ, to die is. Thank you. Let's take a break. Pastor, did you want to say something? No. Okay, we'll get back here when the music starts playing again.